0: There is a, a famous saying that we say, um, he can't see past the end of his nose. Have you ever said that expression? It's, um, it's a cutting expression when you've got a nose like mine. If you've got a nose that's a little bit bigger than the average nose, it can be a tricky thing to receive. He can't see past the end of his nose. Do you know what it means? It's this idea that you, just, you are so self-absorbed that you miss The bigger picture. It's been said to me a lot, mostly by my mother and mostly in my teenage years. Bruce Lee, I think it was Bruce Lee. I feel, you know, you really should know with a certainty when you say this. I think it was Bruce Lee, and I think it was a line in a film that he said, don't look at the finger that points to the moon. And he kind of elaborates that saying. He's saying, don't miss the glory of God's creation. Maybe that's not what he was thinking, but that's what he's saying, by looking at the finger that points to the moon. And as human beings, we do this, don't we? We get self-absorbed. We see the world through our own, this prism that we have created, very much through our own focus. And in doing that, sometimes we miss the bigger picture. I'll give you a few illustrations just to kind of hit that home. I used to drive to work on the M62 every day, and I would hear on my radio, the little man from Radio Air would pop up, yes, I used to listen to Radio Air, and all excitedly say there'd been a car crash on the M62. And the reality of that is somebody's life has been severely changed, you know, it would be a serious car crash, you'd hear this story, somebody's life has been seriously changed, and my reaction, a few junctions back down the road, would be just of slim annoyance, my dad's going to kill me, I'm 15 minutes late, that's my view of that terrible thing, this terrible thing that has happened, there's thousands of people that are going to be late from work, there's so many infinite consequences to that, and I'm just like, oh, flipping egg. and then in a really horrific way, I'm thinking, I hope it's on the inside lane then I'll get there a bit quicker. Do you know what I mean? Isn't that that awful? But isn't that the the way we look at things sometimes? Do you remember a few years ago, there was the volcanoes in Iceland that went off? Do you remember that? Do you remember how that was reported in the UK? It was like it was a bit annoying. Do you remember? It's like an inconvenience. An An earthquake, a volcano, get it right, Ash. A volcano going off. This catastrophic incident, this amazing spectacle, this threat probably, to some Icelanders living nearby a volcano, and we report it as an annoyance. Why? Because that's the way that we look at the world. We see it from our perspective, and in seeing it from our perspective, sometimes we just miss the massively bigger picture that's going on. Remember the Bruce Lee quote, don't look at the finger that points to the moon. And maybe there's some of you around there thinking now he's got the quote wrong. But anyway, you can Google it later on and figure it out. But remember the quote, don't look past... The end of your, look past the end of your nose. Don't be distracted. Don't be like me as a younger person. It is a very human trait. And Jesus said this to the rich young ruler. Do you remember what he said to the rich young ruler? And the rich young ruler, I guess, is distracted by many things. I guess that's what Jesus is saying to him. And Jesus says to him, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I guess what he's saying to him in that sentence is, when we are distracted by the many temptations of the world, he looks at this rich young ruler and he says, when, when you have got so much going on in front of your nose, when you have got so much in your life that is immediate to you, it's so hard to see the fullness of God's glory. In fact, Jesus says it's easier for a camel to climb through the eye of a needle. Jesus uses this brilliantly creative picture that we can't, if we think about it, try and think about it in our brains, can we? But that is the truth of it. It's the reality of it. We view the world through this tight prism. And that's the reality of it for the people in the story that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus. And I guess I want you to be focused on some of the guys and girls and people of Jerusalem at the top of this hill try and see the world, try and see this event through their perspective. In this story that we're looking at in Luke, Luke is bringing things to a head. He's answering some of the questions that he's been asking all the way through. Who is this man, Jesus? It's been repeated all the way through Luke. And we've, been, we've taken the role of the observers in the story, and we've been trying to work out, yeah, who is this man, Jesus? What does it mean that he can do these miracles? What does it mean, well, what's it going to mean that he comes riding? On a donkey. Because in this narrative of Luke, what he's telling us is that Jesus in this moment is coming as Messiah, King, the Great I Am, the Holy One, the Perfect One. That is the story. But what is the mindset of the people on top of the hill in Jerusalem? They don't see past their end of their own noses. They've got a lot going on in Jerusalem at this moment. They've been occupied by empire after empire after empire. They've got a lot to be angry about. They've got to be a lot to be preoccupied with, but they are preoccupied with it. And when Jesus comes as the Lord, as the King, as the Messiah, as the great I am, they can't see past the end of their own nose. They've got one big problem, one big thing they need sorted out. I want you to think about this idea. They want things back to normal. They want Jerusalem back to normal. They want things back to the way they were. They want to put Jesus on the throne to kick the Romans out and to go back to their old way of life. And because that's what they want, think about this concept as we make our way through the story. Because that's the thing that they want, they're going to miss God right under their noses. They're going to miss him. Is that a challenge to us? Are you guilty of that? Am I guilty of thinking about the world like that? Do you approach God like that? You've just got one big problem. One big immediate problem or or your world has been changed from the norm. Something bad's happened in your life circle. Isn't that how often do you turn back to God when that's the case? When the norm is broken? We cannot pray to God for ages, can't we? And then the norm of our lives is broken into by a tragic circumstance. And our prayer is what? Our relationship with God is what? God, make it back to normal. I wonder if in doing that, if that is the basis for our relationship with God, if that is the prism that we are looking at God through, if that's the only time we ever go to him, that we might be missing something of the glory of God, that we might be staring too hard into our own circumstances and our own lives and missing something of the amazing truth of God. The danger, I think, with us as human beings is that we just use God as a vehicle to keep everything the same. And I can certainly look back to big chunks of my life when I've ignored God and the only time I've turned back around to him it's been when I faced the problems that these citizens of Jerusalem faced. And in doing that, I wasn't in relationship with him. Let's, let's look over the text again. Um, I don't know if we can pop it up on the screen. I'm going to read it back through because I, I want, um, as is my way, I want us to try and imagine that we're there in the text. I want you to lose yourself. Now, you've got a lot going on. You've got the ironing to do when you get back. There's probably some great drama on ITV. We're a long way from year dot in Jerusalem, but we're going to try our best to get there, there's, there's air conditioning in Castleford, it's almost ironic, it's a long way from the dusty roads of Jerusalem, but we're going to make that thousand mile jump, so just lose yourself in the story, try and go for, if all the characters, this is what I do when I read a, a text, try and imagine you're, the, you're, some, you're somebody on the hill of Jerusalem and you're waiting for Jesus to come in, try, go, go with me on this, you're looking at me like, I'm not going to do that, just give it a go, it'll be worthwhile verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, tied tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent had went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their clo- cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks Along the road, when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. I've not been, um, I've not been to Jerusalem. Paul mentioned as he as he finished his chairing that he had had this experience of being in Jerusalem. And in a lot of ways, when you talk about something like this, I think it would be helpful to go. But I've got Google, and I've got time, so I can research it. And in my inquiries, I found out that it is an eight-hour, roughly speaking, an eight-hour walk from Jerusalem, from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, we know a little bit about Jericho, don't we? In Jerusalem, and Jerusalem. We know a bit about the road, because we know the story a little bit of the Good Samaritan. So we know that you don't want to hang around on this road, and we know that you go down to Jericho, and you go up to Jerusalem. Well, you go a long way up to Jerusalem. It's about 15 miles. That's as far as I've, I don't know, I'm looking over to check that I've, that I've got it right. Maybe I've got it right. So, and it's about the, the, in, the increase in height of 3,400 feet. So it's like walking to Barnsley, 15 miles, and climbing Scarfell Pike at the same time, but without the lousy weather that you're going to get in the UK. Climbing this road, Jesus is on a dusty track. He's in the heat of the day. Now, I've often thought about Jesus on his walk to Golgotha, on his walk to Calvary, considering his crucifixion. I've thought of it in that context. I've thought about that before, and I've thought about the way that that must just torture his soul, but I've not really ever thought about it outside of that. Imagine this. Jesus is on a day-long walk, and if you, I don't know if you've ever climbed a mountain. The mountain is always in view. It's that nemesis. If you've ever climbed up a mountain, it's like it's there haunting you all day. You've got to keep looking at it and keep looking at it and keep looking at it. Jesus is making his way towards the hill of Jerusalem all day long in the beating down sun, knowing that he's walking towards his crucifixion. Knowing, really difficult to imagine. You ever get this circumstance where you get the joy and the trauma hit you at the same time. Now, I cry a lot more than at any point in my life, but when that happens, when the joy and the trauma mix, and look, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and he's going to be crowned, anointed, welcomed by the people, not crowned, as king. And yet, a week later, he's going to be crucified. His soul, on this ominous walk up this hill, must have been tortured. And the anticipation that he's building in Jerusalem at this time is just... Ridiculous. These people in Jerusalem are desperate for a king, and all they've heard is stories about Jesus, the potential Messiah, the potential king, the miracle maker. How exciting must that have been to have just a glimpse of hope of an end to this Roman rule? There is such a buzz in Jerusalem, and all, you know, I really miss word-of-mouth gossip. We've got mobile phones now. Everything gets everywhere really quickly. But can you imagine an old city where all anybody is talking about is is the Messiah coming? Is the Messiah coming? Can you imagine the excitement and the fervor? I did another bit of research, and apparently, just to give you a sense of the scale and the spectacle, in AD 60, there was a census taken by the Romans, and there were 2,500 heifers slaughtered in festival week. Now, you're looking at me like, what does that mean? That means there were probably something like 2.5 million people in Jerusalem in AD 60. Gives us a sense of how many people were in Jerusalem And Jesus was crucified. Now, two and a half million people in a big city is still going to be crammed, it's going to be like a massive big carnival, but two and a half million people in all Jerusalem, there's nowhere to move. Imagine it's festival week, the sense of excitement that is building, and the word of mouth gets passed round and round and round and round. Jesus is coming. The potential Messiah is coming. And we know from what John writes that there's a multitude of people with Jesus as well. So Jesus is making his way up to the city of Jerusalem with this anticipation and this hope, and there's a multitude there waiting for the king. Now, Jesus does a few stop-offs. That is my way. I'm into a stop-off as well. And Jesus did a few stop-offs on the way, and these stop-offs had massive impact, I think. He stops off at Bethany. So he stops off to get the donkey, but that's, we're not going to talk about that. He stops off at Bethany. And he meets his old friend Lazarus. Now you know the story of Lazarus, don't you? You know the impact of the story of Lazarus. Lazarus lived just outside Jerusalem. Everybody had heard about the death of Lazarus. And everybody had heard that Jesus had raised him from the dead. Can you imagine the excitement that carries with this multitude of people that follows this potential king as he sits there and has dinner with this guy that was dead? And the, the swell grows inside the house. Remember the story, Mary anoints Jesus with pure nard, which is probably the worst name for perfume I can ever think of. It makes me not want to buy some, but apparently it's awesome. And she anoints him with a pint of pure nard. I don't know if you've ever spilt any amount of aftershave anywhere in your car. I made the mistake of doing that in my old Fiesta, some Old Spice, and it lingered for a long time. And I always felt that whenever anybody got in, there was a seediness to myself. Do you know what I mean? They were getting in the car like... Who is this? Why would you lace your car with Old Spice? And I almost felt the need to explain but it lingered for ages and ages. Think about this. Jesus gets to the top of the mountain. He reaches Jerusalem. And this is just really a sidebar. And he's still going to have the smell of pure nard on him. Now if you know anything about your Old Testament kings, they didn't crown the Old Testament kings. They used to anoint them. And if you read through the Psalms, you will read of how the kings would ride into Jerusalem on the donkey and that you could Basically, you could smell them coming. Jesus gets to the top of the mountain with this fervor and this excitement for this king, and you can smell him coming. One more thing that they did, just to, just to complete the scene, they would sing what they call the Psalms of Ascent. Now, I should have really been able to figure out what the Psalms of Ascent were before I went to Bible college, but I learned at Bible college that they were the Psalms of Ascent were the Psalms of going up the hills. You know, not, not really a revelation, is it? But I figured it out. And this is what they did with Jesus. And they started, if you want a bit of homework afterwards, at Psalm 113. And they sang right through to Psalm 118, where they could say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Can you imagine this kind of celebration? They are ready to embrace him as king. And yet... Do they know what they're doing? Do they know what the story that Luke is telling us? Have they got that he's Messiah, that he's prophet and priest and king, that he's the great I am, that he's the great God? Luke is pulling this story right in front of our eyes. And as Bible students, perhaps we can see it, but the people, all the multitude of people are so desperate. They're so clearly motivated by their own needs. They just want to stick a king on the throne of Jerusalem and kick the Romans out. But they welcome the king. I think, I got this this vision of Jesus coming up the mountain on the, on the donkey. I think not for the first time in Jesus' ministry, people would have been scratching their heads at what he was doing. Can you imagine? I guess we've talked about the anticipation, but if you're if you're a young Jewish girl, I guess who's who've only ever known the Roman invading forces. You've heard the stories of your mom and dad bemoaning the Roman invading forces. And you've thought about what this, this, this Messiah might look like. Can you imagine the kind of character that you would come up with, knowing that the Romans walk around all day like dressed in armor, rock hard, conquering the whole world. What kind of guy are you going to need to fix that? I Can imagine imagine just this massive excitement of these millions of people in Jerusalem looking out, where's the king, where's the king, where's the king? And Jesus comes up on a little donkey. I've been the guy who's been a bit, who's been received in quite an underwhelming way a few times. And I remember one time when I met, um, my dad told me that Gordon Strachan was going to redeem Leeds United. He was going to save us. I don't know if you know anything about football. And I remember meeting him before and he's a little Scottish guy. He's about that big. And I remember thinking, this guy, this guy's going to do it. This guy's going to save us. The people on the walls of Jerusalem must have been thinking the same thing. We were, We thought you would be a bit bigger. I mean, they still cheered and they still welcomed him, but they looked at him on the little donkey and they thought, Really? How's this going to work out? What's this kingdom going to look like? And Jesus trots up on a donkey. I think think the mode of transport that you arrive in really can reveal a lot about the kind of person that you are, can't it? The way that you rock up. I remember a few... uh, a few months after, my dad got back in my car having not been in it for years. My car used to be a Fiesta that was fairly well looked after. Then I had three kids, and I don't know if you know what happens when you have kids, your cars just become mini skips that you travel around in. I remember him getting in the seat next to me and looking at me a bit like, oh, you know, just that way. He could almost taste the bad smell, just muck everywhere. And he said, in a very stern way, you need to have a word with yourself, lad. You're letting the family down here. And I remember him. Picking up a chicken nugget from the side of the car and just thinking, oh, no. Do you know what I mean? And I guess it revealed where I was in my stage of life. I didn't care about cars anymore. I used to do, and that had gone away. That had been replaced by kids that I couldn't control or whatever else that it was. was. It was really clear you know, my mode of transport revealed quite a lot about me. And if I were to go in your car today, or if you drive with somebody that you've not known before, all you've got to do is flick their radio on, or look at how tidy their dashboard is, or look at, you know, whether they've got a dog mat in the back. You can just, you can find out so much about somebody just from the, the car that they drive. We were in Saint-Tropez, brilliantly, unexpectedly the other week, and these yachts that pulled in, they were just me and the kids and you just stopped, jaws dropped at these amazing boats. But, As we sort of gawped at them and sort of fell in love with them, they were just really statements of, I've got the most money here. Then the next guy would pull in and it was like, no, actually, I've got the most money here. And then the next boat would pull in and he'd pull out his boot and then there'd just be speedboats in the boot and he'd be like, "Ah, got you. I've got the most money here. The transports were just statements about the people. Jesus rocks up on a donkey and it's not a coincidence. It's not an accident. His kingdom's coming in, he's king. He's the king of kings. He's the Messiah. He's the great I am. He's the guy that flung stars into space, but he's coming on a donkey. There's two reasons, I think, as to why this is. And Luke, I guess, is alluding to messianic prophecy, Zechariah 9:9 again if you want some homework. See your come kings to you. See your king comes to you righteous, having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, and in in this this bit of prophecy, there's like two stanzas, I think that's what you call them, and the first one is about how we can perceive a good king coming with good ways and good values, and the second stanza talks about the way that they got rid of the warriors on horses, and I think Luke's drawing our attention here, look, this is a good king, this is not a bad king, maybe not even a bad king that the people were expecting, this is going to be a good king. Verse 32 and verse 34, Jesus says to tell his disciples about the donkey that the Lord needs it. I thought it was a really interesting idea, this, especially how Luke phrases it, the Lord, the Lord, the Messiah, the great I am, needs a donkey. Why does he need a donkey? to show the world that his kingdom is established on, is built around humility. This is the starting point of the kingdom. And Jesus makes a really clear point. I want everybody to know that foundationally, right at the start, this is humility. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to force this on anyone. This is up to you. It is going to be cloaked in and marked by Humility. I'm just wondering, just now, if in your journey of faith, or if in your journey of life, you're feeling like you've lost your way a little bit, and and part, as part of that conversation with yourself, you're thinking, "I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure where a journey back to God starts. Don't know what that looks like. Don't know if I need to get my Bible out some more, listen to some more sermons, or whatever." Let me tell you, it starts with humility foundationally, Luke has banged on about it for the last 18 chapters. He's not really stopped and he doesn't stop here. Humility. If you're struggling in your faith, if you feel like your relationship with God is not once what it was, the place to start is humility. The place to start is by saying, look God, I get that I'm not all I should be. I get that you're great and that I'm not. I get that I've got work to do. I get that that in, the answers are all in you. It starts with humility, if you've lost your way. I think the second point I'll probably make about the choice of transport that Jesus made was that he was demonstrating God's kingdom values. He says, I need this. something I've been thinking about recently, I guess people come along in our lives, I guess this is, for those of you who are Christians and you have friends and you're thinking, how do I witness to my friends? And it can be a difficult thing, can't it, to do? Jesus chooses to demonstrate God's values by arriving in, in Jerusalem on a donkey. He starts with humility. We could, I guess, tell people all day long that they're sinners and they're going to hell. And I think occasionally that works. It's not really my way, but occasionally it works. But if we show them the love and the grace and the favor of God through the way that we act, if we can show them that we trust God so much for justice, for righteousness, in our humility, then people will begin to see God. Finally, he arrives on a donkey, so he's a humble king, but we mustn't miss this fact. This is not false humility. Jesus is coming as king of kings. Luke started off by telling us in Luke one thirty-three, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. The people on the top of the mountain are expecting a king to get rid of the Romans, to sit on the throne and to have a good 50 years. That is not the kingdom that Jesus is bringing Jesus is going to come and bring a kingdom that will never end. I guess when we think about this, when we think about if it's just a king, what the people do in laying down their coats, cheering him on, singing a song, that's that's an appropriate response. I might do that if the queen walked past. I think that's a good response. She might not want that, but she, you know, I might do that. It's a, it's a reasonable thing to do if it's just a king. But if this is... God, if this is Yahweh, if this is the great I am, if this is the one that threw stars into space, if this is the one that was there at the beginning of time and will judge mankind at the end of time, then just putting your coats down and singing a song is inadequate, really. There's this challenge for us, I think, as God's followers. What do we do when we know or we think that this man that comes to Jerusalem is God. The only thing to do, I think, is to follow, them, follow him. One more thing, one more point. The people there were singing Hosanna. Um, I was brought up in a Christian family, and it was Hosanna is one of them words that I would often drag my, uh, not drag them along, my friends would come along to Christian things with me, so they come along to church or the youth group or whatever it was like that. And then you'd be singing a song, and the word Hosanna would come up, and you'd scream inside. It'd be like Hallelujah or Messiah, one of these words where your friends would look at you and go, "What? What do you believe again? Why do you come here? Hosanna!" Just one of those words that nobody could quite explain. I feel like we should know what it means. I had I had a, a preconception of what that word meant. I thought it was just praise and adoration. I thought when Jesus came, the people shouting Hosanna were saying, we've got it. We know exactly who you are. And we're here to say thank God for you. We can celebrate that. Hosanna, when I looked into it, means save me. That's what they're saying. Save me. Help me. I think what's really interesting about these people was that they didn't know what they needed saving from. They were shouting Hosanna, thinking Jesus can come and sit on the the throne of Jerusalem and kick the Romans out. Isn't that interesting? They didn't know what they needed saving from. They had God in their midst, and they're shouting, Hosanna. Many of the multitude that day recognized they needed help, even recognized Jesus could provide that help. But wanting God's help is one thing. I guess many people that day missed knowing God because they just wanted him for one thing. And I guess the legacy of that is that many people, many people from Jerusalem have continued to miss God because they just wanted him for one thing. I think it's the challenge I want to leave in front of you as we bring the talk to a close. Often the way of us because, because we don't see past the end of our own noses. The way that we interact with God is a little bit like the people on the hill in Jerusalem. We just want him for one thing. And, and our prayer life and our Christian life sometimes revolves around that. Sometimes we just want things back to normal. Sometimes we just we want our 80, 90 years of life quite happy family life. That's not the kingdom that God brings. Jesus came not just to get things back to normal, not just to keep life the same, but so that we might be completely changed. That's not something we always pray for, is it? Our prayers often start, Father, just pray for my little girl that she'll be healthy again and that everything will be back to normal. Just pray that we'll have enough money to get through the week so that everything will be back to normal. Jesus can do that but he came so that we might be completely changed. He didn't just come so that he could deal with our one big problem. He didn't just come for the one thing that we keep nagging him about. He came for every avenue of our life. He came for every problem. He came that we might share celebration with him. He came for us in our filthy, horrible moods on a Monday morning. He came for us in our joyous moments of thankfulness on a Friday night. He came for everything he didn't come just to break you with rules but to make you whole he didn't come to to limit your life he came to set you free it's the job of us as people to try and break that trait of only seeing past the end of our noses that we might begin to know something of the glory of god i just wanted to close with a